0: Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is where we'll be this morning, but it's going to take us a bit to get there because I've got to lay the groundwork of uh, where we're going and how to actually read this chapter. Uh, I've had as my aim in this Advent series to to help us be amazed by the miracle of Christmas by helping us see what the New Testament writers saw in the Old Testament, thereby causing our hearts to be more captivated with Christ this Christ, with this prophet who would come. and So throughout this series we've zoomed in on the poetry sections of the, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and in these we've examined these poetry sections for these hints of hope of what the author is ultimately pointing us towards. You might ask yourself, well, um, well, why do that? Why look at the poetry in these books? And the reason is because the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, follows a basic structure. Uh, What you have is large sections of narrative, followed by these sections of poetry. And what you find in the poetry sections are these little hints and the reminder of who God is and what God has promised to do. Then after the poetry section you get uh, what's known as an epilogue or, or the ending or this, uh, uh, by the way, section of Scripture which points the readers forward to keep reading, and keep having faith in the God who is. In other words, the epilogue is the application for the reader. And this is the entire structure of the Pentateuch. All five books are kind of structured in this way and so the first major poem you have in the if you think of the Pentateuch as one book, the first major section you have of poetry is Genesis chapter 49, and Numbers chapter 24 would be the second large section, and Deuteronomy chapter 32 is the third. And last week we looked at Numbers chapter 24, the week before Genesis 49, and this week I invite you to look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 32. But before we do, if you've been listening to the last couple sermons and understanding uh what the Old Testament is and how it's wrote, uh, you you may be asking yourself questions like, why have you not mentioned the Ten Commandments, Pastor? Why have you not mentioned the Decalogue? Why, Why has there been no talk of the sacrificial system, which is laid out for in Leviticus, the book of Leviticus? When we think about our Old Testament, isn't this where our minds primarily go? When we think of our lives as being in the new covenant which Christ secured for us, Do we not often associate that with the Old Testament and keeping laws? So, Pastor, on this series of sermons about the Pentateuch, why has there been no mention of these things? Let me give you five reasons I've done this. Number one, the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law is not the most important part of the Pentateuch. We read it this way. We read it as if the entire reason why Moses is writing, why God has given us uh, the Pentateuch in the first five books, is that, that, that he wants us to have laws. As if by means of keeping them we might inherit eternal life. We read it this way, but that's not the way the author intended us to read it. Number two, the Pentateuch is a story not about keeping of rules, but rather about the faithfulness of the God who is. If we read the Pentateuch through the lens of God's faithfulness, then this changes everything about how we actually are to understand it and how we are to apply it to our lives. Number three, the Pentateuch itself places faith above and deeper than, merely rule following. You see this in the two great men of the Pentateuch, number one, Abraham, and number two, Moses. What What does the Scripture say about Abraham? It says he was justified by faith by keeping the laws, he, although the, the New Testament would say he kept all the laws, and yet he lived before the law was given. So Paul takes this argument up in Galatians. He says, how can this be? And then you have Moses, who has the law and cannot keep it. Number four, the law of God was never given as a means of salvation, but rather it was given to a saved people. Think about the Exodus story, which we kind of examined last week. Um... Moses goes into Egypt, uh, does all of these things on behalf of the Lord, and, and God brings his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They go across the Red Sea, they wander around for a little bit, they go to Mount Sinai, and there God gives the law. Question. Was the law the thing in which saved them out of Egypt? No. Rather, they were already saved out of Egypt. The law was merely the way in which the, uh, God saved people should live in God's world. It was never meant as a means of salvation. Number five, and we'll spend some time here. The Pentateuch, and the Bible at large, is not about you, but it is written for you. The Pentateuch is not about you, but it is written for you. Think about it. Most of us or aren't quite sure of how to actually understand the scriptures, because we've never been taught that the scriptures are not about us, but they are for us. And so we read, uh example, we read the creation story like this. God loves you so much that he couldn't wait for you to arrive. In fact, he was lonely without you, so he created you. Aren't you special? Well, we read the story of Adam and Eve. Look at what happens when you disobey God. Sin is bad, and you'll get punished for it. So you better shape up and get your life together, or else it will fall apart. With the story of Abraham and Isaac. When God tells you to do something, regardless of whether or not you want uh, want to do it, or whether it makes any sense to do it, you just have to do it. Even if that means killing your one and only son. This is the way in which we read the scriptures if we don't understand. The Bible is not about us, but it is for us. Think about David and Goliath. How many times we've heard sermons preached about life is tough. It's filled with these kind of giant problems in your life and in my life. But God is tougher. And he can help you slay your giants. If only you'll trust him and do what he says. Jonah and the fish. When God calls you for a purpose, it's useless to resist. So remember Jonah. Always remember to follow God's calling on your life. Otherwise you might get swallowed by a fish. That application doesn't even make sense. If Jeremiah's prophecy, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You don't know what the future holds, but you know who holds the future. So whatever happens to you, it must be a part of God's wonderful plan to give you a comfortable life. Jesus calming the storm. When the storms of life settle in on the horizon, don't forget that Jesus is the calmer of the storm. He'll calm the storms in your life, too, if you'll just trust him. Jesus feeding the 5,000, just look at what happened when a little boy gave Jesus all he had. Over 5,000 people were fed with just two fish and five loaves of bread. If you just give all you have to Jesus, he'll multiply what you've you've got until the baskets of your life are overflowing with blessing. How many of you read the the scriptures in this way? Jesus in the wilderness? See what Jesus did when he was tempted? He quoted scripture back at the devil. Therefore, you should quote the devil uh, with scripture so you can succeed against temptation just like Jesus did. When we read the scriptures... From a, this is about me perspective. This is the kind of application in which we then try to apply to our lives. And listen, it'll never work. It'll never work, friends. Because the Bible's not about you. But it is for you. Rather, how should we read the Bible? Take the creation narrative. We have in the Trinity, God has eternal relationships full of love, joy, and beauty. And it was out of the overflow of this love and joy and beauty that, that, that then God created a world to share himself with. You and I are part of this world, which means we will find real love, real joy, and real beauty in knowing this triune God. The story of Adam and Eve, God created people in his image through whom he would reign over all that he made. Even though they rebelled against God, he didn't give up on them. God promised to send a son, someone born in the image of God, in the likeness of of man to rescue humanity from sin and death. And listen, that son has come. And his name was Jesus. For Abraham and Isaac. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son for knowing that he wouldn't. Not to teach us a lesson about trusting God blindly. Rather, God was testing Abraham's faith in the promise that God had already given him. That one of Abraham's own descendants would bless the entire world. Only when he finally came, he wasn't spared like Isaac. Instead, God gave up his only son in order that you and I would not taste death. David and Goliath. The Israelites faced an impossible enemy in Goliath. But God raised up his servant David to win a battle they were unwilling and unable to win. The moral of the story isn't about trusting God for his help. It's about the need for God to win the battle that you and I can't win. The battle against sin and the battle against death. God does this in Jesus. Who defeats sin and death on behalf, on our behalf, so that we reap the benefits of his victory, just like the Israelites reap the benefits of David's victory. Jonah and the fish. Jonah was supposed to tell the Gentiles in Nineveh about the Creator God and his plan to set the world right, but Jonah was a self-righteous, hateful man. And so God forced Jonah to go preach to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles repent, unlike Jonah. When the story ends, Jonah is mad at God because he showed mercy to those sinners. Are we any better than Jonah? Do we feel we have earned the mercy of God while others get what they deserve? You see, Jesus is proof that none of us get what we actually deserve. And thanks to Jesus, we receive grace upon grace, just like Jonah and the Ninevites. Jeremiah's prophecy. When the prophet Jeremiah recorded God's message, he was speaking to the nation of Israel, for I know the plans I have for you, for Israel, declares the Lord, Plans uh, of warfare and not for evil, of welfare and not for evil, to give Israel a future and a hope. The context of these words is the exile, a time of captivity, when every good Jew would have been wondering, how can God's promises be true if we're all stuck all the way out here in exile? And so Jeremiah reminded them of the God who is powerful and faithful to keep his promises. Jesus is proof of that, by the way. He was the one Jeremiah was speaking about. Jesus was Israel's hope and Israel's future. And he's your future and your hope, too. Jesus calms the storms. He didn't calm the storms to remind you that he can calm the storms of your life. He calmed the storms to demonstrate to his unbelieving disciples that he is Lord of heaven and earth. As Lord of the cosmos, Jesus has a lot bigger plans for you than making sure you have a comfortable life. So every storm won't be stopped. But you can rest assured that when it's all said and done, Jesus the Lord will take care of you in the end. That's what the cross and what the resurrection is all about. Jesus feeding 5,000 people wasn't to teach us an object lesson about giving our all to Jesus. He fed them because they were hungry. And Jesus cares about the physical needs of others. He had compassion on them because they were helpless. Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God into the world, which means that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the world is broken and out of joint now. But Jesus came to set it straight. His work continues still through the hands and feet of his body, which is you, the church. Jesus didn't venture out into the wilderness to teach us about resisting temptation. He could have done that without all the hype. Instead, Jesus faced off with Satan to show that unlike us, he can resist even the strongest temptations. That's the point of the story. Where we fail, as Adam did in the garden, as Israel did in the wilderness, as we do every day of our life, Jesus succeeds. He succeeds where we can't succeed. And he wins the battle against Satan for people who have no hope of doing it for themselves. You see, how we approach the scriptures matters. It would change the way we think about what it is that our eyes are actually reading. So with that, let's dive into the Pentateuch. Look at Deuteronomy here with me. Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you're there, say amen. If you need more time, say hold up. Alright, before we get into Deuteronomy 32 though, look back at Deuteronomy 31. Look at verse 29. Look at the context of the poem in 32. Deuteronomy 31 verse 29 says this, For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So here, Moses is talking to the children of Israel, and he says that after I die, when I am no longer here, you will act evil. You will not listen to what I have commanded you. And because of this, in the last days, evil will befall you. Now, th- those of you who are paying attention, have been here the last couple of weeks, uh, this, uh, this in the latter days, right, this, uh, in verse 29, it says, In the days to come, the same word is translated uh, in Genesis 49, that in the latter days. This is important because of the structure and the shape of how this book is actually functioned. Is highlighting the meaning here. This, this poem is, is meant to remind you, this, this context setting of in the latter days should hearken you back to Numbers chapter 24, to Genesis chapter 49. But if you aren't familiar with Deuteronomy as a whole, Let me give you a 60-second overview. Deuteronomy is a book of speeches to which Moses is giving to the children of Israel. Uh, The the first uh, speech or sermon that Moses gives is chapters 1 through 4. The second is chapters 5 through 28. And the third is 29 through 30. And the fourth is simply eight verses at the beginning of chapter 31. And the primary goal of Deuteronomy is the renewal of God's covenant with his chosen people. The reason Moses needs to give this renewal to the people is because the first generation has passed away. In our scripture reading this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 5, 1 through 22, this was the second giving of the Ten Commandments. If if you've ever, like, Googled, because I'm sure, like, maybe some of you don't know where the Ten Commandments are in the Bible, so you're like, where are the Ten Commandments at in the Bible? You Google that, you're going to get one of two answers. You have the the giving of the commandments in Exodus, but then you also have the Ten Commandments here again, stated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Have you ever wondered why that is? because the first generation's passed away. You see this generation which stands before Moses in the book of Deuteronomy is a different generation than the ones that were released from slavery in Egypt. They didn't grow up in slavery in Egypt but they grew up in the wilderness wanderings. And so Moses throughout the book of Deuteronomy his one goal is to this renewal of God's covenant relationship with his covenant people. Matthew Patton, a professor at Wheaton College, said this in talking about the importance of this book. He said, Deuteronomy is the mountain at the center of the Old Testament. Everything in the Pentateuch leads up to it. And with its climactic renewal of God's covenant relationship with his people, and everything in the rest of the Old Testament flows from it, the blessings of the land is found in Joshua through 1 Kings, and the curses of the covenant in 2 Kings through Malachi, and the subsequent need for a savior And at the top of the mountain is none other than the God of Deuteronomy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, this book of Deuteronomy, then, is a message given to God's chosen people on how they are to live as God's chosen people in God's world. And we come to the end of the book here, chapters 32 to 34, and Moses says that in the last days, the people will do evil again in the sight of the Lord. Now back up just a few more verses here in verse 31 for the last bit of context that we need. Look at verse 19. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall comfort them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them. You see, this is God saying that the song that we're getting ready to look at in in chapter 32 is to be taught to Israel so that it will be a witness against them. It's a warning about what happens when you forget God because of the blessings of God. So then look at me in chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, His work is perfect, For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The opening words here of this poem reminds us of how good the Torah, how good the Pentateuch actually is, and it points us to a perfect and righteous God. You can hear it in the opening verse, this idea of gentle rain falling on tender grass. This is a picture of peace and serenity, and its message is that the Lord is our great God, but notice the response of the people in verse 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of His peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land in a howling waste in the wilderness. He encircled them. He cared for him, He kept him as the apple of His eye. Notice the contrast between the first five verses and that of the next five. In the first five, we have the greatness of God, and yet we see in the next five, his children dealing corruptly with him. Now Moses is doing something very interesting in this poem here. He's calling to mind the memory of how God created his people. He wants them to remember the fact that the Lord is their father. For it is he who made them, and it is he who established them. And notice this word in verse 10. He says he found him in a desert land. This, this word in verse 10 for desert is the same word found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says the earth was without form and void. This idea of formlessness or desertness. is an interesting idea that Moses is doing here because he's re-giving a creation story. Only this time he isn't talking about Adam, but rather he's talking about Israel. He's saying that Israel is a second Adam. Adam was not created in the garden, by the way. He wasn't created in the garden. Rather, he was created in the desert, and then God created the garden and placed him in it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. But even the idea of God as Israel's father is placing them in the context of their being like Adam. You see, Adam was the son of God, and now Israel is indeed the son of God. In other words, the story of God having a son and that son needing to listen to the voice of his father is now retold with Israel as the son. The question, then, which Moses has already answered is, will Israel listen to the voice of their father? But scroll down to the end, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of this song, and in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun, and when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is the end of the poetry section and the epilogue, which is the application section for the readers. What Moses is saying is that the Torah is to be for them like the tree of life was to be for Adam and Eve in the garden. The Torah is their tree of life. And as long as they would eat on it, they would live. This is why the, the, this song in chapter 32 talks about how good having the, the word of God actually is. So what the end of Deuteronomy does is to make clear that Israel is in the same place that Adam was with one major difference. You see, Adam was created righteousness. He was created righteous. But Israel needs a circumcised heart in order to keep the Torah. The application, simply put, is that they should keep the Torah. Like, they should keep how God designed the world to work, and therefore they should walk in it. That's one of the main applications here. But, but notice what happens next. If we get the death of Moses in, in verse 48. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses. Notice this is different than uh, in the latter days, which opened it up. Now it's immediately going back to real-time Moses, the Lord speaking, on that very day. Verse 49, go up this mountain of the Mount Abram, uh, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, the, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me, in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of uh, Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of sin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there, into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. See, the death of Moses is certainly the most significant, lasting implication of the book. Moses broke faith, and therefore God did not allow him to go into the promised land. But what happens next is even more interesting. What happens after this in chapter 33 is a poem which follows the format of blessings found in Genesis chapter 49. Uh, The poem changes the tone at the end of the book from one of uh, a negative, like, I guess this is it, Moses, our leader, is dead, to a positive blessing. There's many fascinating things about this poem, but unfortunately, I've only got a few minutes left. But I want to point out something in chapter 34, which is the epilogue to the poem in 33. Look at chapter 34, look at verse 5. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, in the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, and Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Here we have the death of Moses, and Joshua, who's presented as this kind of wisdom teacher, and this new leader of Israel. We're also told that Moses had been buried, but that no one knows where exactly he is buried. Now, it's interesting to note here, because we always say that Moses is the author of of the so, therefore, Moses wrote Deuteronomy. How would Moses write this if he was dead? You see, he didn't write it. As a matter of fact, uh, it's, it's, it's thought that even the chapter, verse 30, uh, chapter 33 and chapter 34 were later added on by God's Spirit. Still Scripture, still applying to our life. But it was added on. Not only was it added on, it was added on sometime later. Did you notice? How would the people of Israel, when Moses goes up on the mountain, not actually know where Moses is actually buried? See, the fact that it says no one knows where he is buried even to this day should make us stop and think how much time has passed that we've actually forgotten where Moses is buried. You see, quite some time has passed. And Moses didn't write these words, but, but the Holy Spirit did. And this is massively important for us. Because, there, uh, because there's been quite some time past since Moses has died. No one knows where he's buried. But notice what it says in verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, pause with me just for a second. If this was wrote shortly after Moses has died, how much sense does this actually make? It's like, yeah, man, like, uh, Moses has been gone for like three days and there's never been another prophet like him. It doesn't make sense. You see, this, this was added on much, much later. Because the, the point of the book is to get us to keep looking. Look at verse 11. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in all the sight of Israel. You see, if these words were written shortly after Moses died, then they really don't make any sense. But they were written a great time after Moses had died and added on by the Holy Spirit so that we would actually know how to read the rest of the Old Testament. You see, the entire book of the Pentateuch ends with the fact that they were still waiting for another prophet. They were waiting one for one who would be like Moses and know the Lord face to face. And guess what? He hadn't come yet. For Moses said back in chapter 18, "...the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." And the book ends saying, it's been some time, and we're still waiting, y'all. That's how we should read the end of Deuteronomy. That's how we should read the rest of the Old Testament. Because Deuteronomy is setting up for you how to read and understand the rest of the Old Testament. Is that, like, we didn't find him in the Kings. We didn't find him in the story of Jonah. We didn't find this prophet, one who was like Moses, in any of the wisdom literature. We're still waiting for him. But dear brothers and sisters, that prophet has come. His name was Jesus. And he came at Christmas. You see, this is why it's so important that we read the Old Testament the way the New Testament authors wrote it. And you say, well, well how is Jesus a prophet like Moses? I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Both gave the law of God from the top of a mountain. Moses gave it in Exodus 19. Jesus gave it in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Both, as children, faced the murderous plan of a wicked king. Both led an exodus out of slavery, one physical, the other spiritual. Both started their exodus at Passover. Both Moses and Jesus pled for God's people. Moses leads people through water. Jesus walks on it as God. Moses saved the people from Pharaoh. Jesus saves his people from their Sins. Moses was born a slave and adopted into royalty. Jesus, the eternal king, became a slave to save his people. Moses' birth was illegitimate according to Old Testament law. Jesus was born of a virgin. Moses turned water into blood, which no man can drink, and in John 2 6, Jesus turned water into wine. Mosaic purification cleansed the outer man, but Jesus cleanses the inner man. Moses reflected the glory of God, and Jesus is that glory. Moses wrote on tablets of stone, Jesus replaces our stone hearts and writes God's law on them. Moses and Jesus both fasted 40 days. Moses fed the people with manna, Jesus is that true manna. Moses lifted up the bronze servant, Jesus is lifted up so that all would behold him and be saved. Moses ascended a mountain to get the law, Jesus ascended to heaven and gave the Spirit. Moses' law commands perfect obedience, and Jesus perfectly obeyed the law for his people. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Moses dealt with types and shadows. Jesus is the reality. Moses' sin excluded him from the promised land, and Jesus took the sin of his people to get them into a restored Eden. Moses was was faithful as a member of God's household. Jesus, as God, was the builder of that house. Moses ultimately failed, but friends, Jesus never fails at anything. It's important to know that Jesus was the second Adam. You see, Adam failed in the garden to obey all the Lord had commanded. Israel would fail to obey the commandments of God and not walk as God's people. The rest of the Old Testament is story after story after story after story of people failing. And then you get Jesus. He never fails. Jesus passed the test that Adam and Israel had failed as the sons of God. And yet the curses of the covenant fell on Jesus in our place. Friends, do you see it? Do you see that the entire Pentateuch, the entire Old Testament, looked for and longed for the day in which this prophet would come and appear? We likewise should then read the Old Testament so that we can all the more celebrate the gift which was given in Christ at Christmas. This is the real reason for the season. The way in which we read the Old Testament then changes. Knowing that the law was given to a saved people, not to save them, but merely to instruct them on how to live as God's people in God's world, should then make us dig deeper into the Old Testament, into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to know how we ought to walk and how we ought to live as God's new covenant people in God's world. Let's pray. My God, we we love you, Lord. We examine here the end of Deuteronomy, Lord, as we come into uh, a week looking for, longing for, to celebrate the birth of Christ as the incarnate God. Lord, I pray that we would read the Old Testament this week even. And as the writer at the end of Deuteronomy says, there has not arisen a prophet, one like Moses, who knew God face to face, that we would know Jesus as that prophet who came to live the perfect life who came to set us free not from physical slavery but spiritual slavery and sin and death Lord may we marvel at what actually happened on Christmas day may we marvel and rejoice that now as God's new people as his new covenant people chosen elected before the foundations of the world follower that we would then walk as God's people in love and in the law of Christ, Father, Lord, we need your help to do these things. We need the Spirit to actually come inside of us and change us from the inside out, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. We need the Spirit to make us love, to give us hearts, not of stone, but of flesh. It has a pulse and it beats blood through the rest of our body. And that we would be the light of Christ in a dark world. Father, so many people celebrate this week Christmas, and I have no idea why it is that they have reason to celebrate. But Father, may we be a people who walk in the way, who follow Christ hard in all aspects of our life. Lord, so we need your help to do all of these things and so much more. We ask for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.